This is the last of three talks on the theme of thinning the self. And in particular, we're following up from last time, a week ago, when we looked at two particular ways of practicing, ways of being aware that could help us to thin the self. We looked last time particularly at ways of seeing experience, much like in our guided practice near the end of the session, as like the flow of a river, like the flow of experience, as that concept, for example, was developed by the uh, Hungarian writer uh, Csikszent Mahajali, I think his, his name is pronounced. And the second way that we worked with to help to thin the self was particularly seeing where the self is thick. And hopefully people practiced a lot at home during the week and we can have in our discussion some sharing of what was noticed, what was explored. So I'd like to give a brief review of the theme, the general theme of thinning the self, a brief review of those two ways of practicing that we looked at last time, and then take us into two other broad ways of working to thin the self that I had mentioned in the original talk in January, but that we haven't gone into in depth. So, And those two ways are first a series of other methods to go beyond that thicker sense of self, and then lastly, the opening to a kind of large awareness beyond a sense of self. I've mentioned last time and the time before that this exploration is really that of one of the fundamental areas of practice historically, traditionally, and that is to study the theme of what is called anatta, usually translated as not-self, sometimes I think mistranslated as no-self. One Buddhist scholar said, rarely in history has so much depended on one consonant. I mentioned that people sometimes hear the term no self and they run for the hills or they can engender a lot of confusion. And I mentioned how this teaching of anatta is one of the three major areas of insight historically. The others interrelated are understanding the nature and roots of suffering and also the nature and roots of freedom and then also the uh, fact of impermanence. And these are very much related. In large part, we tend to construct a solid, separate self, in part because we don't see the flow of impermanent phenomena so clearly, in part because, as I mentioned last time, we live in a kind of constructed world of concepts. Meditation helps us to deconstruct that constructed world to a significant extent, certainly at moments, and we see in a different way. We see uh, outside at times of the world of concepts. Of course, concepts are valuable and they're primarily designed to help us navigate pragmatically in the world. The problem is, is that we tend to take the conceptualized constructed world as reality. and live in this world of concepts. You know, and the newspapers are organized by all sorts of concepts and we don't see either the constructed nature of concepts or we don't see that one can live and experience without being so bound by concepts. 
one of the core concepts that we want to look at is the concept of the self, which again is more or less taken for granted in the culture, but in meditation we look carefully and we see that it is not as obvious and not as real as we were led to believe in, let us say, common sense ways of understanding experience. I've mentioned how this is a very confusing area because of the language that in spiritual circles people may talk in one breath about not-self and in the next breath they'll talk about the self with a capital S being the true self or the real self beyond the false self, <laughs> beyond the limited self, beyond, it's often said, the ego, right? And we go beyond the ego. So, and the language can be very confusing and, and is, is confusing. And, uh, you know, even uh, psychologists are, use very different terms. Some people use the word self positively. Some psychologists use it more negatively, right? Some people, some psychologists use it more neutrally. <laughs> you know, Western philosophers have also in the last few hundred years had very different views of the self. In the uh, mainstream Anglo-American tradition, uh, often there's been a questioning of the nature of the self. And so you have philosophers like David Hume from Scotland in the 18th century, and he looks at experience and, he's, and he, wanting to really, in a way, uh, give a philosophy that's linked with the rising science of the time, he wants to say, I don't want to take anything as real unless I ground it in observations of experience. And he says, when I look at my experience, I find no self. A lot of people have said that sounds like the Buddha. <laughs> right? and, and so on the one hand, you have uh, a Western philosophical traditions which say the self is some kind of construct that doesn't really relate to actual observations of experience. How does it feel being told that? <laughs> you know, and so the philosopher Wittgenstein, although he was born in Austria, was in that Anglo-American tradition. He said the self is based on a grammatical mistake. Again, how does it feel to be called a grammatical mistake? <laughs> he, more, he more or less said when you use language and you say, I have pain, we tend to think that the I must be an object. But it's actually just more talking self-referentially about what one experiences or what there is an experience. He says, we make a grammatical mistake and we think I have pain means there's an object called an I. So that should elucidate things, right? So, and so on. But on the other hand, you have other philosophical traditions which say, well, you may not be able to find self directly in experience, but the philosopher Kant says there has to be uh, a self or else we, uh, experience wouldn't be coherent. There has to be something behind the scenes like a self, something that unifies experience. So I, I thought I'd mention that partly to show that there is a lot of difference of views, a lot of confusion in the culture, in Western traditions, as well as Asian traditions, as well as psychological traditions. Hence, my strategy has not been to try to work on a conceptual level to look at the conceptual construction of the self, <laughs> but rather to look practically at what this is really pointing to, because I think the upshot of the teachings is more practical. And this is why I chose to really focus on four practices, but I, I've wanted to sort of preface things by saying it is a conceptually <coughs> confusing area. And yet, from a practical point of view, I think it's less confusing when we actually look to what we can explore and experience. This is from uh, D.H. Lawrence. He, he uses the concept of the ego, but the rest of it I like. <laughs> okay. When we get out of the glass bottles of our ego and we escape the squirrels turning in the cages of our personality and get into the forest again, 
we shall shiver with cold and fright, but things will happen to us. <laughs> so I think that's somewhat of an analogy for meditation. So um, <clears throat> I spoke uh, uh, in these last two talks about four ways of practically exploring what this teaching is about. Last time I focused on the, on the two, that sense of the flow of experience and also that sense of looking for the thick self. I think these are very practical ways of exploring what this teaching is about. And so, <clears throat> last time we looked at uh, the sense that we all have had, or <clears throat> I think all have had, many of us reported, a sense of experiences of flow, where there's less of a sense of self, where we have a sense of the fullness of experience without much self-consciousness or self-image, and we just experience the flow of sensations, thoughts, uh, sense experiences of all kinds. And we gave a lot of examples of that. We could give the meditative example of simply being with the flow of experience. Here's a thought. Here's a body sensation. Here's this. Here's that. And sometimes, and we can explore this in those short meditation periods of two minutes or three minutes, let me just sit back and watch my experience come and, and develop a kind of choiceless awareness. We, could, <clears throat> we can do that and have a sense of flow. And we also saw that we have flow experiences in some of the most cherished times of our lives. And we gave, we heard a number of different people last time and I was listening to the talk on my way here, the talk and our contributions from, from the group. And it was wonderful to hear people reporting on artistic experiences, experiences of writing, you know, where one was just in the flow, which, which I reported a few times ago was one of my first senses of the flow, where I was pulling an all-nighter at college and I just had this sense of being three or four hours without any sense of self, just being with the, totally with the creative process and how something felt expansive and amazing and wonderful. And we looked at uh, those experiences that people were reporting in the experience of writing or the experience of listening to music or playing music, playing jazz. We had, we had I think it was John, right, near the end, gave us a report of uh, playing jazz. And, and we know that when music is flowing, especially improvisational music, but really any kind of music, there is that sense of being with the flow of the music. If you have a sense of self or self-consciousness or I'm doing this great, it's not going to happen. Right? It, it's, and we can see that in so many activities. Uh, uh, painting or being with trees, being with the natural world, being with people we care about where there's enough intimacy, so there's no sense or little sense of self-consciousness or needing to protect part of oneself or not needing to go there, right? And we cherish. These are, we find, the most important experiences of our lives, where we experience love, creativity, unity, interdependence, connection with nature, uh, beauty, and so forth. And we looked at those kind of flow experiences and I was suggesting that these are one way of getting at what this experience of not-self is about because in those kind of experiences we don't seem to have much of a sense of self. It has a lot of characteristics and uh, of course if we have those experiences and then talk about it, that's different, right? Mm -hmm. But in those experiences we, we seem to be uh, getting at something which is very similar to that sense of uh, the experience of not-self. And the invitation was to look for those moments, could be brief, where you're just with the flow, washing dishes, being with a friend, doing anything, and to actually track them, because often they just come and go without us noticing that there's anything important about them. And also the invitation was to cultivate that sense of flow more meditatively, you know, in the, for these short periods of noticing. Then the second area that we looked at 
was, in a, in a way, the uh, complement. And this was seeing, really, what gets in the way of the flow. What gets in the way of those flowing experiences. I used the metaphor of this being as if it were thick. So this is noticing and looking for the thick self. And a great amount of our practice of exploring the sense of not-self is opening to these experiences of flow more and noticing where the flow gets obstructed. That's our practice, right? A lot of our practice is like that. Sometimes, though, it helps to point out the different ways we get stuck or the flow gets obstructed. And so last time we looked really in three ways at uh, when a thick self appears, uh, the first was more obvious and the second two were a little more subtle. And so we can look in our meditation or just in our ordinary experience, we can see where there's a strong sense of self-image or self-consciousness or self-preoccupation. And again, I was presenting the self as something, presenting this uh, area, not as something bad to get rid of, but something to study. So we want to study the thick self. We just don't want to see and say, bad, get out of here. That's not actually a very good way to transform the thick self. Because that's actually uh, creating another thick self. <laughs> linked with the superego that thinks that thick selves are bad and creates a new sense of self as one who gets rid of thick selves. <laughs> Okay, so you can see there's some humor possible with a lot of what we do. We often, you know, I told stories last time, uh, a very common experience of being a meditator whose work is to open to flow experiences without a thick sense of self, who then takes credit and creates a thick sense of self around not having a thick sense of self. (laughs) This is like the occupational hazard of meditators or anyone doing spiritual practice, right? Uh, sometimes called, uh, for example, by Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, spiritual materialism. <laughs> well, but it's where we, we um, well, you got it. I don't need to say any more. And, and so we were looking for uh, where that thick self appears and seeing that it can appear in our meditation or just in, in daily life as really being preoccupied. Oh, and it can be, again, for good reason. I'm preoccupied because something important is at stake, right? Uh, and, but, it, but we can see that it can often be very self-oriented, or we can see that thick self in liking and disliking. Thick self, the self can often be thick there. Or, what, in a related way, what we call reactivity, where there's a strong sense of, I don't want this, get away, pushing something away, often protecting ourselves or trying to guard ourselves against something or say no or all sorts of things. There can be a thicker sense of self also when we want something. I want this. There can be a a thick sense of self. So the invitation was just to study this, to look. And we want to look at how that thick self appears at the level of the body, at the level of the mind, the thoughts, the stories, the narratives, the emotions. And that is an important, really an important part of our practice. I also mentioned two broad areas where that sense of a thick self is more subtle. One of them I called, or we could say that one of them is opened up by looking more psychologically, particularly beneath the surface. And the other one is more, comes from looking at social conditioning. And so there's a, there can be a thick sense of self that is somewhat beneath the surface, interestingly. You know, and that might be there because of my history, of my developmental history. I may have had wounds that came from this occurrence. You know, my parents may have divorced when I was six years old, eight years old, ten years old, and this was scary for me. I developed underlying beliefs that I should be careful about getting close to people because they may leave me. And this goes unconscious and starts to develop a sense of self which is scarcely conscious 
but it organizes my behavior nonetheless, right? Uh, and so I am shy away from her, very scared about relationships. And there's a, we could call that there are aspects of self there that are beneath the surface. Does that make some sense? And that was, that's an example. We could see that in 50 different ways, that there are aspects of self that are beneath the surface. Again, often occurring because of our own particular developmental histories. Um, you know, one of the ways that I've looked at this a lot, both personally and in working with people, is taking examples of the judgmental mind as often pointing to what's beneath the surface. There might be self-judgment that can be very strong, that can be related to an underlying sense of self as not adequate or not okay, very pervasive in this culture. It actually doesn't appear on the surface, and yet it organizes experience. It may organize when certain negative things happen in my experience, I may have strong self-judgment. And it's come in, in Western psychology, we talk about this as coming from the unconscious or being relatively unconscious. And that's harder to get at, right? Because, it, but, but there still is a sense of self. And similarly, there is social conditioning that often forms a sense of self that all, isn't always obvious, right? Think of the roles of gender 50 years ago, right? Men and women had thick senses of self that weren't obvious about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. A lot of that's been brought more to the surface, right? People have brought uh, uh, awareness to social conditioning like that. Same thing around, can be around concepts of race as we've looked at you know, in different sessions. We can have concepts of, uh, particularly of whiteness, often is, is invisible to people who are white, right? And yet it organizes experience. We've, we've looked at that, uh, you know, in, in uh, December, I think, and January when we looked at the, the concepts of race in relation to spiritual practice. So you get a sense of this. And part of what can occur with, uh, you know, with uh, sometimes with social movements is that they bring consciousness to what was beneath the surface, right? You know, Gender concepts aren't the same as what they used to be. It's more out there. And people can see, oh, there was a thick sense of self that I had. I'm not as good because I'm a woman, or I'm better because I'm a man. Or, you know, the, the concept of, uh, you know, I am white, I am normal, right? And people who are not white are somehow not normal. It can be a very thick sense of self, right? And we don't see it unless we look in a special way. And this can, again, so, so the, the psychological and the social are sometimes harder to get at because they're beneath the surface. And yet there still can be very thick senses of self. So you can see that uh, uncovering the thick sense of self is at least a lifetime's project, right? <laughs> this is not easy. But, and yet this is what we've, I think this is what we've signed up for, really. <laughs> and if you, does anyone... Well, you can still sign up <laughs> if you didn't think you've signed up. But I think, you know, if we want freedom, we have to get at the thick self, don't we? We have to get at that. If we want freedom for ourselves on all the different levels of freedom, we have to go there, you know, in these different ways. So I opened that up last time. Of course, you know, uh, all of those could take... You know, we could take a month or two months on each of those. They they're, they're, uh, can really benefit from a lot of looking. So here I wanted today, I wanted to look at two further ones and then have, get to our discussion where we'll see, uh, hopefully I'd like to see what people have explored individually uh, in the last week or two as well, you know, as, well as having fresh questions. So... The first area is to look at several further methods of thinning the self, a lot of which we, a lot of which we use. Uh, one of them is to look in our experience, and this is more of a traditional Buddhist method, is to actually see the constituents of experience very clearly 
and see how we may form a self around particular components of experience. So classically, there was a model called the model of the skandhas, or the aggregates, which was the Buddha's way of saying you can look at experience and see it as a flow of bodily experiences, thoughts, perceptions, likes and dislikes, and various kinds of awareness. And this is what we see when the mind gets quiet. We see this continual flow of the constituents of experience. And somehow we fixate or we say we have certain perception or certain experience and we say this is me. So someone may look at one's form, the form of one's body, and say, I'm thin, or I'm fat, or I'm this appearance, and form an identity around it. And we often do that particularly around more negative identities and more positive identities. So people can, you know, and, you know, I remember, you know, a lot of us do this with our bodies as adolescents, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, when I was an adolescent, I seized one part of my observations and perceptions and said, whoever I am as Donald, I am a body with big feet and big ears. <laughs> right? How many of you remember as a teenager having seized on some aspect of your experience that formed your identity, often was negative, some part of your body, right? Anyone? I, I, I suspect that there are more people did that than just raised their hands. <laughs> right? And so the, the Buddhist teaching was that actually we do this continually. We fixate on... Uh, we fixate on aspects of experience and the invitation is can I just be and see oh there's a bodily experience oh there's a perception oh there's a uh, thought oh there's an emotion oh there's a like and a dislike can I just be and be with that flow and meditation is in part set up to let us experience like that let us just be and then notice where there's a sense of self let me see if um, this, is, this is using that model of the skandhas or aggregates, and the five of them are first, material form, second, the sense of uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is called feeling tone. We've studied that at times. The third is perception, noticing an object, and it's very connected with memory. And then fourth, is what are called, uh, sometimes called mental formations, which we could really more or less broadly see as thoughts and emotions. And the fifth is consciousness. So here's a quotation from the Buddha. How does the sense of self or personality view come to be? Here, someone who is untaught and unpracticed looks at material form as self, or self as possessed of material form. One regards feeling tone, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral as self, perception as self, formations as self, consciousness as self. And then how does one, uh, how does one come to see it clearly? One sees those aspects of experience without connecting it with the sense of self. In other words, one can be with the flow without saying, this thought is mine, this emotion is mine this bodily experience is who I am. That's, that's the classical training. And in meditation, we explore that simply by being with the flow of experience and noticing any addition to that flow. Noticing when we say, oh, I like that. Or, or I say, that's a really good thought. Or we, we think uh, we have a narrative and we think of ourselves in a certain way and we say, that's me. And the invitation is to be with experience that's more like what we were talking about as the flow experience, where there's thinking, there's uh, like and dislike, there's a reaction, there's a sense of the body, and we just watch that in a flow of experience. So this is one way to uh, continue that practice. And it's to just see that there's this continual flow of experience and that the sense of self is a kind of an add-on. 
It's an add-on that we all make. Again, uh, and watching for that thickness of self. Another way of practicing with this comes under the rubric of what we might call purification practice, where we notice and we heal the sense of thick self. This might be in the areas of our wounds or our difficulties. And we have various practices that we do that can, psychological perhaps, or when I work with people around judgmental mind, there are ways that one can get at places where the self is thick and heal those places. A lot of them are connected with uh, developmental wounds or difficulties. And I'm really speaking about something which we could, again, we could probably take multiple sessions on. But there are ways of practicing where we work with our challenges and something gets released. You know, often that sense of the thick self is there to protect us because there's a wound. If the wound gets healed, we don't need to protect ourselves in the same way. You know, if, I, if I have a, a sense of my own inadequacy, I will be continually trying to protect myself, get confirmation from others, was that okay? You know, create all sorts of self-material. And if I somehow heal that and think I am basically okay, a lot of that activity just ends. Right? And yet we have to respect the thick sense of self as protecting us. So not to be criticized. Important, right? And uh, a number of uh, uh, Buddhist-based Western psychologists have tried to say that in some ways, in fact, we need to develop a sense of self before we work through it. You know, that, that we need to learn to navigate in the world and we often come with these various developmental issues and we need to be able to work with them. We be, need to be able to work through them and that opens us to go beyond that thick sense of self. There are also uh, this wonderful series of heart practices that we work with, which in a way can very much take us beyond that thick sense of self. So we have loving-kindness practice, compassion practice, forgiveness, uh, empathy practice. All of these, in a way, cultivate the kind heart, often in a protected environment, and let us, ex- let us experience beyond that narrow sense of self. So in loving-kindness practice, we cultivate that sense of kindness uh, first towards ourselves and then towards others. We develop that sense of kindness and love. Again, that's something that's developed in so many spiritual traditions. One cultivates a sense of love and compassion as a way to move beyond the thick sense of self and open up to a way of being beyond the thick self what we call love. So we can also cultivate these, uh, what we might call awakened emotions, more and more. You know, and again, there's a wonderful passage that illustrates this from, from the tradition where the Buddha came to these monks who were living together who were called the, collectively the Anarudas because they, they, were, they called themselves the name of the elder monk who was named Anaruda. And the Buddha came to them and said, how are you living together in, in, on such friendly terms, regarding each other with the eye of affection? And the elder monk said, we've all been practicing metta, her loving kindness, with regard to acts of body, speech, and mind. And he said, dear Buddha, we have diverse bodies, but assuredly we have only one mind and heart. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. And we, we may know that as parents or as friends or as with people that we very much love. This is a vehicle for working with that sense of thick self, right? the sense of love, the sense of compassion. Those of you who are in helping professions maybe practice compassion a lot. And you know, my experience very much in working with people is that more and more I come to see it's more or less the same mind, heart, and body. And the conditioning is very, very similar. And it really leads more to, what was coming to mind, there's a line in an old Woody Guthrie song. 
some of you may remember it, I think it's the ballad of Tom Joad, where he says, we may be just one great soul. That's the way it looks to me. <laughs> Do you remember that line? Some of you know that song probably. You can look it up on YouTube. <laughs> you know? But there's, there's that sense that we come to through compassion, whether it's the compassion of our work, of our family, of being with those who are in need, that tends to get cut through that sense of thick self, right? right? As a parent, one keeps on being there even if you haven't had any sleep, right? Or even if your own needs aren't being met. And that, you know, that can, of course can be distorted, but it can also be something that takes us beyond that narrow and thick sense of self. So I think these heart practices are a fundamental way to go beyond the thick self. You know, again, we can do it as a meditative practice with metta for compassion, with, with empathy. We can do it uh, in our lives. You know, and a lot of the religious practices of other traditions really emphasize that. In the Jewish tradition, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That goes beyond that thick sense of self. Or Jesus teaching, love your enemies very difficult practice. Again, there's something that happens there where I go beyond that polarized sense of self and other. So I'm I'm really identifying this broad area of heart practices, both meditative and ones that we develop in, in daily life. One of the most simple and beautiful practices that I like a lot is empathy practice, which is continually tuning in to the feelings and needs and experiences of another person. You know, and so one can actually, and again, I, I try to practice this when I'm working with someone or just being with people, where I'm continually trying to have a wider sense of things. You know, where there's my own experience, so to speak, and there's another's experience, and I'm tuning into both of them. Right? And we do this, again, with people we're close to, typically. I think these are all uh, ways of deconstructing that thick self. And in Buddhist tradition and in traditions of the teachings of Jesus and so forth, there's that sense of that becoming potentially universal, not just with people in our closed circles, but bringing that to all beings. It's a very amazing intention, isn't it? It has very much to do with this sense of the kind heart eventually being very expansive. Uh, Dr. King talked about this as the creation of the beloved community, which was the ultimate intention of his work. He said, the end of what we're doing is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. Right, that... that And so there's this whole beautiful, broad area of cultivating the kind, awakened heart in various ways. And lastly, there's this area of cultivating this large awareness that is, in a sense, beyond any sense of self. And I want to bring this in because this is something that's been very important in my own practice and something that uh, is there in the teachings of the Buddha and many of the teachers of uh, many traditions, not just Buddhist, but certainly there in uh, Buddhist tradition. From the teachings of the Buddha, he talks in this way of an awareness which is close to the sense of the sacred. He says, where consciousness is signless, boundless, luminous, where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing, there both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form are wholly destroyed. So he's pointing to the way it goes beyond conceptualization, right? Living in the world of concepts. There's some kind of awareness that's beyond the usual conceptualization. It's even, you know, it's beyond seeing objects in the world. There's something, there's a bigger awareness that's possible. And again, I think we open to this at times. 
he says, he's talking with one of his uh, practitioners, when the sun rises and the shaft of light is entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, sir. And if there is no western wall, on the ground, sir. And if there is no ground, on the lake, sir. And if there is no lake, it does not land. In the same way, where there is no reactivity, consciousness does not land or grow. That is freedom from sorrow and suffering. So he's pointing to a kind of awareness that's beyond that. And he often talks about it as luminous. There's a luminous awareness which we can touch into. This is from the um, teacher uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who's a, who was a very influential, uh, we, I guess we would say Hindu teacher in a way, uh, who uh, some of the Spirit Rock teachers uh, studied with who died, I think, in the mid-90s or so, he said this, The art of meditation is the art of shifting the focus of attention to ever-subtler levels without losing one's grip on the levels left behind. The final stage of meditation is reached when the sense of identity goes beyond, beyond I am so-and-so, beyond so I am, beyond I am the witness only, beyond there is, beyond all ideas, into the impersonally personal, pure being. But you must be energetic when you do this. It is definitely not a part-time occupation. (laughs) And so, in the Thai forest tradition, there's also this kind of reference in in the traditions that very much inform spirit rock. Uh, And, you know, in the uh, teachings of Achan Man, who lived until about 1950 or so, and was a teacher of Achan Cha. Achan just means teacher, right? And uh, Achan Cha was the teacher of Jack Kornfield, someone I studied with briefly, and uh, a teacher for a lot of the, uh, quite a few Westerners. He died in the early 90s also, I think. And uh, Achan Man, who was his teacher, said there is, he used the language, there is the radiant mind. There is the primal mind that one can connect with. And the distinction he made, this primal mind is distinct from the contents that move through it. So there's some kind of awareness that one can connect with, which is free from the contents. And the meditation instructions were touch into that kind of awareness and see if you can sense into that awareness that is beyond the uh, contents of experience. And Chan Cha said, he was just with Achan Man three days. He got that teaching. He said that was enough. And he went and practiced it for seven years. Right? And, and so um, other teachers use different language. Achan Sumedho, a Western teacher, calls it natural awareness. And uh, Achan Mahabua, who was one of the great Thai teachers, uh, whom I met and went to, I went to his monastery in... Uh, northern Thailand, he said this, when the mind becomes a pure mind, that center disappears. And we can't say that the mind is above or below in any particular spot because it's an awareness that is pure, an awareness that is subtle and profound above and beyond any and all conventions. So it's beyond concepts, beyond language. We can't say that this awareness lies high or low. There is awareness with nothing else infiltrating it. There is no escaping this truth of pure awareness. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in and of itself, won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind doesn't vanish. Everything of every sort vanishes, but that which knows their vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. Whether or not we try to leave it untouched, it keeps on knowing. And so one of the instructions would be, can you kind of stand back and touch into an awareness that is separate from all the phenomena occurring? That's one one of the instructions. And... Another instruction might be to 
look at your consciousness when you're not trying anything and when you're totally... Uh, one of my Tibetan teachers said one of the ways to look at it is just look at your mind when you're totally exhausted. <laughs> and just see if you can touch into this awareness which is not trying to do anything but you're still aware. He also said one way to look at it is look at your awareness when you're yawning. Truly, this is some of the instructions. So it's subtle, right? You look for awareness. Another is to um, look, look when you're startled, you know, like, and track your awareness in the split second before you came back to, okay, I'm back to me, right? And look at that. You can, so you can do a practice and keep startling yourself. Sit there. <laughs> start to yourself, and then track that awareness. This is one of the in- ways of introducing oneself to that awareness. You know? And then there, there are further ways of practicing. Sometimes certain language or poetry can do it. I, I've sometimes recited some words from uh, uh, a Tibetan text of the 16th century that's been very influential for me from Dagpo uh, Tashi Namgyal. Uh, from a text called Clarifying the Natural State. And he says, open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. So that evoke something. Right? So, you could, so sometimes for my practice, I'll say those phrases to myself and just let there be some resonance. You can do that with lines from a text or poetry. So this is a kind of awareness beyond objectification, beyond concepts. And it's taken in these traditions to be close to the sense of the sacred, if not the sense of the sacred, taken to be something very precious. This is a last way of practicing with uh, to open to this thinning of the self. And in that state of awareness, the self is taken to be pretty fully thinned and the thick self has, at least for moments, can be worked through. And the way that practice often works is you try to access it just for five seconds, just for one second, just for three seconds, and you keep accessing it until it gets bigger in your experience and and more accessible. Okay, so let me close with, uh, this is um, this is one of the forms of guidance from the Buddha for this, for this training. This is how the training should be done into, I'm going to add the gloss, into, this is how the training of thinning the self should occur. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such lens. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and liberation by wisdom. That's from 2,600 years ago. So that final expression may feel lofty or remote. We still can access it at times. And all of the other practices, which actually may have felt accessible, and not so lofty or remote, but still inspiring, those are quite accessible, and they all go in the same direction. And so we can practice being with the flow. We can practice seeing where the self is thick, studying it, releasing it. We can study those other means of practice, meditative, working with the heart practices, both, and working with the development of the kind heart in everyday life. These are all ways to thin the self and to open to <clears throat> experience beyond the thick self. And again, in <clears throat> the tradition, often paradoxically, going beyond the thin self and the th- or going beyond the thick self was sometimes talked about as developing a great self. <laughs> Language is often paradoxical. This is the Mahaatta, which was the same name given to Gandhi, Mahatma. Right? And we may say that the going the thinning of the self results in a great self which is no longer thick. <laughs> right? And that's our direction.
So any reflections, observations, questions, <coughs> spontaneous poems? And, and then second right here, yeah, please. So you asked us to do a practice. Yeah, we did doing practice in the last week, yeah. Right, and yeah. so it, it, it turned out to it turned out to be, um, I don't think it's on. Yeah, I don't either. Why don't you tap it? If you tap it, you can. No. I don't oh, know how to fix it. Um, it's it is on. I can hear it's I can on, hear. but maybe. Maybe you, know you can turn up the level. Sure. That might help. Sorry. Put it close to the mouth. We'll, we'll try. Yeah. All right. So it, it turned out to be a very few, fruitful yeah. um, exploration for me. Um, what I found was that what, what I have is observations go. and questions, not so many solutions at this point. Yeah. My observation is that the thickness of the self for me happens most frequently when people disagree with me. <laughs> and it's, that, it, it tends to happen quite often, actually. And, and that is when I, I just leap yeah. to the defense of my positions. And I don't have a tolerance for the disagreement. And I, I find that, the, that when disagreement occurs, it's a barrier it, it's a it's a it's an impediment in my relationship with mm -hmm. the person. Yeah. I find myself not not comfortable with the person. I hate to say that I dislike them, but um, um, that's part of it. Yeah. And so yeah. so the the uh, so I'm exploring this, and the teachings that I'm trying to hold on to are three different things that I've picked up from different sources. One yeah. from you, yeah. where you talk about the fact that. Um, a disagreement is not the start of a war, but the start of a conversation. Yep. So that's that's a good one. Another one is something that Sylvia has said before. I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> 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 this is possible. And the third was from was from Ram Das, who was speaking about um, having an altar where he does his little uh, gratitudes in the yeah. morning, and he had an image of. Uh, the Buddha, yeah. he had an image of Jesus, he had an image of um, Neem Karoli Baba, yeah. and he had an image of George Bush. Yeah. <laughs> and then he put his face very close to the camera and said, love everyone. Yeah. Um, and so I'm trying to keep these things in mind as I process my observations. Yeah, yeah. so there's a lot there. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be brief, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, so there'll be the heart practices, that's like, like I was saying, Dr. King, love your enemies. Uh, metta, we go to also be with everyone. Again, it's a practice that has its developmental stages. You don't start there, necessarily. Um, and that first practice that you were citing from me, um, there's actually another piece, which is actually take a disagreement as a starting point for inquiry and to ask questions. Why am I reacting so much? Might I learn something from this person? Mm -hmm. right? And to really take uh, disagreements as a starting point for inquiry rather than war. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe we can come back to this topic about how we work with ideas, views, and disagreements because it's so, such a fundamental area. How many would like to do that in some future time? It's, yeah, and it's, disagreements are endless. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot there, and yeah, that can be an amazing practice to, to know that disagreements are one of the places, and then you can work with these practices. Some of them in the moment, maybe some of them meditatively. And try to work especially initially with disagreements which are not the hardest. Again, in the learning process, we work with that principle of working up to the most difficult and putting a lot of our time learning the principles where it's not hugely difficult. So work with minor disagreements. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous area for exploring the thick self, right? Because yeah, views classically in the Buddhist tradition are one of the four areas where we get caught, where there's a thick self. So please, yes. a little some closer to the Some yeah. of this has uh, a relationship 
uh, yeah. to, to those observations. But also, what I'm wondering about putting that into practice in the fact that we often have to act in yeah. life. Yeah. We have to do something. Yeah. We can't just sit and think about it. Yeah. And there are, are times when um, even in trying, even in understanding another person's point of view, yeah. having given that thought and caring, uh, one must act and be disagreed with. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how we do, how we live with that mm -hmm. in, a, in a way. How we live with that. Okay. How do we live with disagreement? Well, and, and also how we live with it with disagreement, but also how we go forward putting into practice things that we th we think must be done. Yeah. And how do we and so, you know, what's coming to mind also actually is Dr. King. It was quite a quite a good example because and he used more Christian distinctions and terminology, but I think they're they're pretty general. And so he tried to distinguish between the person and the action. Right? And he criticized the per the action, but he tried to hold the person with care and with love. So we might we might uh, have a different view, but we try to see not to use that disagreement as a way to um, hate the other or have mean spirit towards the other. Except, what about when you're the person who takes the action mm -hmm. um, and are going to have to deal with... Yeah, yeah, well, again, I think the example, again, Dr. King is maybe a high bar, but... but <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think what he, but the Buddha is a pretty high bar too, and and he he was taking action all the time, right? He was taking action. He was going against the actions and the institutions and the cultural views, right? And he was trying to do so in the spirit of love and connection and creating the beloved community. So, con, you know, again, what we're describing is maybe uh, higher degrees of difficulty. But look at it maybe with smaller, you know, with uh, more ordinary disagreements or differences, you know. Um, I don't know, uh, I'm on a committee and, you know, the committee uh, agrees, you know, there's a difference of view on the committee and I'm the chair of the committee and the committee adopts my view and there's a minority view that we don't adopt and we go ahead and act, how do I hold the people who have the minority view, right? Do I demonize them? Do I feel a lot of antagonism? Is there a thick self? Oh, they disagreed with me. So that's all practice, but we still can can act. But I think it's almost like what, what you're pointing to is that in these circumstances, we really want to both look out for the thick self appearing, and then we want to have practices that help us work with the thick self and cultivate maybe that sense of connection or care, even with people with whom we have disagreements, even with people we have to act against what they would like, right? Does that start to get at it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, it's, these are great practical areas because this stuff's happening all the time, right? Yes. This is happening all the time with us. So some of what I said today is going into somewhat, like I said, somewhat lofty areas of meditative practice, but, but at the basis this is very practical and very <coughs> everyday also. Um, please, yeah. In that vein, um, uh, in our personal relationships, this is something that's really been bothering me and what this woman said really hit a chord with me yeah. because there are people that I am very close with that yeah. I, you know, that, that I, I think I basically love yeah. and have re ongoing relationships with, but they're, you know, I'm starting to feel like, am I getting older? What you know? That some of the things you know, like I, there's just this antagonism, this real yeah. re, strong reaction against some of the, and I try to, you know, overcome that and try yeah. to put it into perspective, and 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 then go proceed lovingly 
caring for yeah. them. And But I feel like such a hypocrite. I feel like, you know, what is the real me? What it, Who is the real yeah. me? Is the, yeah. Or the self the real? Yeah. Is, 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 the, is the self really the loving person or is the self really the person that just has all the, these bad reactions? Yeah. Yeah, uh, so thank you for really uh, sharing that. How many can relate to what? Your, your name again was? Angela. How many can relate to what Angela was saying? Yeah, uh, a lot. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, on, it's ongoing practice. And also, it's, again, helpful to think of this. This is a high degree of difficulty situation, it sounds like. And we can actually explore the same issues where it's less difficult. Right? And explore the issues where maybe it's a coworker you don't have so much at stake with, and maybe you don't interact so much, but there's still some difficult chemistry. Right? How, do I, how do I work with the situation? And you can, uh, you can use the various practices that we've talked about in those kind of situations. And I think, uh, you know, I think it's, one doesn't have to come down and say, the real me is the reactivity, where the real me is the love. A good starting point would say uh, both aspects are present in my experience, and I'm interested in uh, working to transform the reactivity and develop more of the love. Right? That's that's an approach. But you can say both are there. Uh, we don't have to, you know. I mean, there, we we have a you know sort of a, a view, if you want to call it that in this practice, that the reactivity is actually uh, more superficial and that the love is deeper. You know, but that has to be your own finding. Uh, that can guide you. you can, that, can, that can be a kind of a faith at a certain point. That can be, that can be helpful. It can, it can feel not so useful when it's like the reactivity has 90% of the airtime <laughs> and the love has 10 like, Okay, well, this is happening 90%, but it's more superficial. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> you know, so, um, so what to do is to use the practices that help you notice and study the reactivity. And some of our relationships, this is like uh, a long-term practice, you know, with certain people, you know, if we, uh, and, you know, you know, from one perspective, you can thank the person. Oh, this is my difficult person from whom I get to learn so much. <laughs> right? You can have that attitude. You know, it's like I like to quote Shanti Davis as just like, just like a treasure appearing unexpectedly in my home. I should be grateful to have a difficult person in my life where this person assists me in my conduct of awakening <laughs> from the 8th century. Right? And, and, uh, and so we can use all the practices that help there and do it on an ongoing basis. You can do loving kindness practice. With a difficult person, I find the best practices from, of the heart nature are compassion and forgiveness. Uh, better than trying to develop love. Because the compassion and forgiveness actually takes you to the painful part of it, and that tends to soften the heart more than just trying to feel loving. And so with difficult people, sometimes if you can go to the pain of the situation and do it in a protected environment, that will tend to open the heart more than trying to be loving, or trying to say loving things, and actually realizing, oh, this is painful for both of us. And that will tend to open the heart more, in my experience, than many others. So compassion practice, different kinds, uh, forgiveness practice, you know, asking for forgiveness for yourself, forgiving the other, and so forth. Those can very much soften, soften the heart, and do the work on that. And, and it is possible over time, and if you do your work, whatever the other person is doing, there can be a kind of uh, development in yourself in which you participate less in the reactivity. <coughs> and the other person will tend... It's very hard to be reactive when the other person is not being reactive. And so it will tend to uh, shift the dynamic some, you know. But I think there is... This can be, you know, this can be a five-year or ten-year practice. But uh, if, you do, if you do it, particularly those heart practices and really watching the thoughts, there can really be some shifts, even with something that's been there for 20 years or 50 years. Yeah, yeah thanks. Okay, I think we're near the end of our time. Um, 
might be a little bit of an artificial ending uh, to this theme, partly because I'm going to be away for like whatever it is, uh, five or six weeks. But uh, um, may we continue with these practices of seeing where the self is thick, studying it, studying it over and over again, uh, and opening in ways to, uh, uh, you know, sometimes in protected environments, sometimes in the midst of things, opening to ways to experience the thinning of the self or the self being thinner, you know, in these all sorts of ways that we've mentioned. We've mentioned 10 or 20 different ways that we can work with this. And so may we continue, may we share notes, may we evolve collectively. Thank you. And let me just finish with two things. Let me invite you to, again, see what your own intention is at the, at the finish of this series. And maybe it's not so finished. We'll come, maybe we'll come back. I'll see. Um, it's definitely not complete. It's just maybe temporarily finished. <laughs> um, but see what calls to you. Where does your mind and heart go? as your next step or your next steps with with this theme. And then we close by remembering that We do these practices, these explorations, these inquiries, clearly for, quote-unquote, ourselves. (laughs) 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 And we also very much do them for others. Quote-unquote, others. And may this be a benefit for all selves, both thick (laughs) and thinning. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.